Welcome to the Mornings with Sue and Andy podcast for Tuesday, July 4th. 17 months into the war in Ukraine, an attempted coup against President Vladimir Putin, the Ukrainian counteroffensive, and the role China plays in the conflict. We get the latest from Elliot Tepper, professor of political science from Carleton University. The federal government is fighting with tech giants Meta and Google. How will the Online News Act reshape the Canadian media landscape? We discuss the situation with Michael Geist, Canada Research Chair in Internet and E-Commerce Law from the University of Ottawa. And finally, to nap or not to nap. Details on the latest research on the health benefits of napping, including evidence that taking an afternoon siesta can actually grow your brain. We get the details from Dr. Ted Jablonski, our on-call family physician. Russian President Vladimir Putin virtually attending the Shanghai Cooperation Organization Summit and claiming Western sanctions against Russia are only making that country stronger. Joining us to talk about it is Elliot Tepper, professor in the Department of Political Science at Carleton University. Good morning to you, Professor. Thanks for being with us. Uh, Good morning, Sue and Andy. Appreciate it. Let's start with this Shanghai Cooperation Organization Summit today. What exactly is it and why is Putin even allowed to be there? Well, uh, he's one of the co-founders. China and Russia have set up an alternative international security organization to counter the prominence of all the others that are really Western-dominated. This was done a few years ago. It's expanded considerably in scope. A number of countries that you wouldn't expect to want to join have, in fact, joined, uh, including India, which has big disputes with China. Uh, And India, in fact, is... uh, hosting major meeting now. So the the uh, purpose of all this is to for Mr. Putin to say to everybody there, look, we still have friends, we still have allies, we are not, and Mr., keeping in mind that this is Mr. Putin's first major appearance uh, since the mutiny or the revolt by Prigozhin, and he's there to say, I'm still in charge, uh, I still value my friends, I tell the world we have friends, and an important part of what this meeting is about, covered by uh, his comments there, is that a lot of the trade, 80% in that particular article, 80% of the trade among some of the big members, uh, China and India and Russia, is done in local currencies, that is, in rubles and in and, uh, the Chinese currency, the yuan. So sanctions can be avoided if because a lot of that depends on the U.S. currency dominance. If you can avoid U.S. currency dominance, you can avoid sanctions, and that's what this meeting is intended to demonstrate. Professor, big picture. Uh, How would you explain and how can we break down the relationship between China and Russia and their role in the Russia-Ukraine war? Are they backing Russia, or do they have a real interest in bringing this conflict to an end? Well, China and Russia... Uh, had a a, a plan that the bold attack by Putin to change the geopolitics of Europe was fully supported by China. That's quite clear. But China has officially remained kind of neutral on it, but it's neutrality in favor of Russia. The two of them are trying to overthrow American, Western, uh, NATO dominance of the international order, this was going to be a bold stroke to do so. It has failed, as we know, because of you know, Kiev's stalwart resistance to the uh, takeover of the country and the elimination of Ukraine and the bringing of a duopoly, basically Chinese and Russian uh, geopolitical interest right into the heart of Europe. But China 
no matter how this works out, is a winner because for a long time the attention of the world was diverted away from China because of the Russian invasion. That has swung back a bit now. But if Russia wins, then China wins in this war. But if Russia does not pursue its goals effectively, then China gets stronger in the relationship, becomes an even more dominant senior partner in the relationship with claims eventually on Russia's vast uh, natural resources. So China is a winner in a sense, but of course it would prefer to have a, uh, a winning strategy with Russia, and that strategy is failing. Professor, changing gears just a little bit, I wanted to ask you, it's been about a week now, what are the implications of that failed coup by the Wagner uh, Group? You know, has that had an effect? Is that forgotten now? Have we moved on from that in terms of the war? No, I don't think we've moved on from it, but nor do we understand fully what's, what the impacts are since much of it is opaque. Uh, what we do know is that uh, Mr. Putin was actually challenged. He's... Uh, I've been following the expert opinions on this very closely, and they're totally split on it. Uh, he, no, Mr. Putin is weaker. Uh, it's shown that he's vulnerable. His aura of invincibility is gone, uh, and you can start counting the days down till maybe Mr. Putin departs. On the other hand, uh, the opinion is, look, he was challenged. He beat the challenge. Uh, sure, he looked a, a bit weak at first. He has yet to uh, eliminate Mr. Prigozhin. Uh, but uh, it does show that he's really strong, and he could be there for years and years to come. So the expert opinion on what this means is uh, very much split because it's all conjecture. What we do know is that he was challenged, that uh, the Pogosian march for justice, as he called it, uh, was called off. One of the minor items that has not been covered, I think, fully is that if anything good came out of all that for the West and for the world is that General Sorovakin, who was uh, an ally, apparently, of Mr. P General uh, Mr. Fergozin, has apparently come under scrutiny. He may be replaced. He may be under arrest. This was the architect of the tragedies in Syria. He was the architect of the type of war we are seeing right now, Russia carrying on in Ukraine, break the will of the, of the civilian population, attacking hospitals and so forth. If his elimination comes out of this, as it'll be one concrete positive result. But at the moment, Sue and Andy, we do not know completely what the implications are of this uprising. Will Pogosian survive it? There's all kinds of side issues. It's not just in Mali and in Africa, but in Libya, where this money-making mercenary arm of the Russian government has, has been playing a role. It's still very, very murky. But what's clear is that there is intra-elite dissension at the very top over the conduct of the war, even the purpose of the war. Prigozhin, as you know, now has famously said there was no need for this war in the first place. And the generals that he's opposing, uh, the people he's opposing, have blown it. So we'll have to see how all this works out. But clearly intra-elite dissension over the war has been made manifest by this uh, mutiny or this revolt or this statement of outrage by Prigozhin. Well, in the past week or 10 days, we did see Prigozhin and the Wagner group of the, the, this attempted coup. But would this be the only group that might be uh, looking to uh, make some internal change when it comes to Vladimir Putin? Or could there be others within uh, the ranks? 
this is so opaque. We know that uh, the term now is being used, uh, the term <laughs> clans. There's various clans, factions competing with each other, and that Mr. Putin has encouraged clan competition so that he remains on top, but eventually that clan competi competition could bring him down as well. What we do know uh, is that the, the factions there are now going to come under increasing scrutiny. You can watch for a purge, uh, which will further divide and weaken the security and defense apparatus. The, um, the interesting thing for me to keep an eye on, two things I watch very closely, uh, are the uh, twin nuclear implications of this entire war. I think a long time ago, it's possible, I'm speculating here, that Mr. Putin's repeated threats to use nuclear force may have convinced a number of his own military people and the people closest around him that it's time for the old man to go because that is a threatening the nuclear annihilation of Russia itself. And the other thing is the accidental or deliberate use of the Zaporizhia nuclear power plants as, an, as a part of this war. Uh, there's a very serious and more imminent possibility that there will be a nuclear radiation leak out of the Zaporizhia power plant. And uh, there's now reports we're getting today, yesterday, that Russia has in fact mined, mined uh, all of the power plants, uh, there's six of them, inside Zaporizhia. So uh, two nuclear threats are something I've been trying to follow very closely. We will probably check in with you again on this. Thank you so much for your thoughts this morning, Professor. Really appreciate it. Oh, it's uh, good, good to talk to you. Thank you. That's Elliot Tepper, professor in the Department of Political Science at Carleton University. Meta and Google have taken steps to limit Canadians' access to news via their platforms in response to the federal government's Online <clears throat> News Act. Joining us to discuss the state of media in Canada is Michael Geist, Canada Research Chair in Internet and E-Commerce Law at the University of Ottawa. Good morning to you, Michael. Good morning. Well, let's start from the start. Can you break down the Online News Act or Bill C-18 and, and how you would define it? Sure. I mean, it was obviously the government's attempt to try to support media that it appears may really be, have been an epic own goal because it seems to be boomeranging back against them. And I think the reason for that is that while I think many Canadians would say that if Google or Facebook uh, copy full text of articles, run ads against them so they're profiting from it, well, then, of course, we ought to be talking about compensation. But what this bill does is says that even just linking to that content, let's say in the case of Facebook, someone posts, oftentimes the publisher posts a link to their article, drives the traffic back to their site. Facebook still needs to pay for the existence and the posting of that link through agreements with all kinds of publishers. And that company, alongside Google, has said paying for links with basically uncapped liability is unworkable. And faced with that prospect, they'll simply stop linking so that they comply with the law by essentially falling outside of it. So, Michael, I mean, this is this is a bad thing in so many different ways, and I do agree with you. I understand, and I think the government was trying to help media, but this clearly was not the, the correct way, and it's really backfired. So, you know, what's the impact then in terms of block news? You we're not able to share it at all, and and just the, the truth and the reality of, of news stories and, and where people can get their information, the correct information. 
Yeah, no, I think those are all good points. I, th- I think, listen, this is a situation where I think everybody loses. You know, the, I think the companies lose. They're making, they're deliberately making their products worse because they're seeking to comply with the law by ensuring they don't have to pay for links. I think Canadians lose because to the extent to which they rely on these services uh, and news is a part, can be a part of that, and these services are worse and they won't be able to do that should this go ahead. Uh, and then I think most important, the Canadian media itself loses. You know, the the value of the links is significant. The Senate, for example, heard that social media can constitute about 30% of some sites' traffic, social, uh, search, another 40%. And there were businesses that said they'll, they'll simply won't exist if they don't get that referral traffic, plus some of the existing deals, because there are millions of dollars already in deals from those two companies. Those are in jeopardy as well, with a bill that does now will not, won't provide anything if that's what happens. And so it's, it's, I think it's, it's bad news all around. So uh, I want to break this down, uh, Michael, because we talk about how often, you know, U.S. media infiltrates, you know, Canadians, our eyeballs. Uh, but, you know, we do know that there's no boundary on the Internet. This is a boundary that's been constructed. Will we still see links to American news articles and American opinions? Yeah, I mean, that's the irony here. And the answer in all likelihood is yes, at least in many instances. You know, what the companies will target are what the legislation calls eligible news businesses. In other words, they've got to ensure that the business, that the news entities that are captured by the legislation, they're not providing links to that content. Otherwise, they're facing hundreds of millions in liability for payments for those links. Now, there are maybe some foreign entities that are captured by that definition, but it, it, it's clear that most will not. And so those won't be affected. And so you're right. I think what Canadians may find in terms of their ability to share or search results are foreign sources or other Canadian sources that don't qualify for the legislation. And I, I don't think that's a good thing. Certainly, we want to see Canadian sources and Canadian information, but uh, it also runs the risk of moving towards more, more lower quality type of news sources that fall outside of the framework and thus continue to survive um, and be still linked to in search results or on social media. Michael, can the government pull back on this now or is it too late? That's a great question. You know, the you know we often hear references to Australia and negotiated settlements there. Canadian government and Heritage Minister Pablo Rodriguez really provided far less wiggle room and space for negotiation here. And so there have been some talks with Google, it sounds like Meta or Facebook. Uh, at this stage, news is just such a small part of people's feeds, they're, they're looking to exit altogether. Um, there's still some space for negotiation. This, this won't take effect until some time before the end of this year. We don't know precisely when. Um, but the, the problem I think the government has created is that there isn't a ton of space to negotiate since the law has already been passed. It's received royal assent. All right, uh, switching gears somewhat, uh, we heard news of this in the past week or so. Uh, the proposed post-media Torstar merger. Uh, your thoughts, the likelihood of success in addressing the challenges faced by the media sector by such a merger? I don't think the, it's likely to succeed whatsoever in terms of addressing those issues. It's, it's hard to think of a case where you get two deeply struggling companies to suddenly they become one strong company just because they, they merged. And it feels as if we've seen this before. Of course, there have been some other mergers that Post Media has been involved with in the past. In some ways, I think there's a strong link between these two. It highlights that you know when we see that, when we see some of the layoff news that we've seen, we've seen requests from some large media companies at the CRTC, at the regulator, to reduce their spending on news. 
it feels as if the sector's already voting with their feet and they already have lost faith in Bill C-18 as, as a real solution. If you could wave your magic wand, Michael, and, and fix the whole thing, what would you do? How would you implement, you know, or would you implement any kind of rules in this in this regard? Yeah, no, I mean, thanks for that question, because I think one of the frustrations with the government's approach here is I think they took the riskiest possible approach. They took the one that they, they knew going in was going to be contentious, and that was in some ways almost likely to put us in the position we're in. There were alternatives. There still are alternatives. You know, for example, we could establish a system similar to what we have in film and television that require the, these tech companies to provide a portion of their ad revenue, let's say, one, two, three percent, whatever it is. It's similar to what we would find, as I say, in some other sectors. And that money could go to fund journalism, not to fund companies that we know, as we've just been saying, are struggling, but to fund actual journalism in some arm's length, some arm's length way. And, and that would remove the issue of paying for links or concerns around independence of the press, around who's eligible. So, you know, the government really adopted a, a piece of legislation that from the get-go was clear to raise these kinds of concerns. And it's, I think it's always really tragic because there were better approaches available that could have actually helped support journalism in Canada and not put us in this difficult position. Michael, thanks for your time and your insight this morning. We appreciate it. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Michael Geist, Canada Research Chair in Internet and E-Commerce Law from the University of Ottawa. To me, this this makes me sad because... It's terrible. Well, in big picture, listen, we all have to disseminate those sources that we find credible, that we align ourselves with. But what I liked was on my feed, I'd have different perspectives, perhaps from news organizations Mm -hmm. that I don't normally follow. I'm introduced to new media sources, new journalists, new thoughts, and now that's gone. Yeah. Like, what, we're getting in our own way. I don't even know what the answer is. I don't know either. I mean, it just seems like I, I get it that the government was trying to help because media is in a tough way, right? Like, it's a difficult time, and you want the right information out there, but now we're only going to get one sort of side of information, and that's from the American perspective. And we've talked about this so many times. We learn too much American history oh, yeah. and geography and all of that in schools, let alone, you know, now, what, yeah. what are our sources on social media? And do you think that the government is underestimating the power of the online world? The government here to protect, but you can't shut that Pandora's box. And the, the bottom line is we are going to be online. And we do know as, hey, listen, we happen to be traditional media here on a radio station. Radio has been around for a year or two. Mm-hmm. Television has been around for a year or two. And I get it. And whether or not we morph and and uh, change up and, and we're doing the things that we have to do to be relevant in 2023 and we might you might find us and by the way you can stream us on qr calgary qr that's the answer right my, there my, Andy. yeah my point is we are getting to become streamers but it's a product that we've always provided and we have to morph but maybe the canadian government just doesn't get it Maybe not. Maybe not. What do you think? Is this, does this affect you? Do you care? I think people will really start to realize maybe right now it's like, ah, big deal. But when you start only getting American information and you lose all credible news yeah. sources out of Canada, I think people are going to really go, wait a minute. I depended on that. Yeah. Sue was going to introduce this next segment, but she's a little too tired. She's sleepy. Question is... Exactly how many hours of sleep do we need for optimal health? And outside of your normal sleep schedule, can a regular napping routine provide health benefits? To discuss the latest research surrounding sleep, we are joined by Dr. Ted Jablonski, our on-call family physician. Good morning to you, Dr. J. Good morning. Tell us about this study and, and the parameters surrounding it. 
well, where do we start? So there's actually two studies that came out, both using data banks from the from the UK. So these massive, massive data banks of 300,000 patients. Uh, and they looked at people who napped, and then they looked at brain size, and there was a correlation with some people who do a fair bit of napping seem to have bigger brains. Do bigger brains so, make us actually smarter? <laughs> No, but oh. they, they're protective against things like dementia. So the, the notion is if I have a bigger size brain and it deteriorates over time, I have more to work with. So mm. I might get dementia later in life or it, it's considered protective and a really, really good thing. So this sort of made us wonder, well, is maybe napping, which is considered usually not very good or a sign of trouble, was looked at in a favorable light. And then the next part of that was, okay, well, you know, people who nap, were they people who were sleeping a regular amount of time or were they sleeping not enough time? Because there is some notion that six hours or less might not be enough. And there is a correlation with with all kinds of mental and physical illnesses and people who sleep six hours or less and poorly, right? So if I see a, uh, sleep six hours or less and feel very tired all the time and need to take naps, that's not a good thing. So, but if I nap and I feel good and I might only sleep six hours, maybe that's okay. In fact, maybe that's an advantage that uh, I only have, uh, I can get by with a much less sleep. So this is very confusing. It is confusing. So is the gist of it though that, you know, if I only get, you know, six hours of sleep a night, but I get a two hour nap in at some point that I make up my eight hours and, and it might be okay? and might be okay. That's what the study's pointing to. This is a bit of a flavor of the month. So I don't know that I would um, uh, stick with this too closely because next year we might have a study that says the exact opposite. But that's the notion of this, is that napping might be okay as long as we're getting a reasonable amount of sleep and as long as, um, <laughs> I don't know what, what more to say than that. Like, it, it's very confusing. but. The ideal to to the lead question is probably seven to eight hours for the majority of people. But there is a small minority who can get by with much less sleep and do just fine. <laughs> and that's good luck on those folks. And there are, we all know them who literally can get by with maybe five or six hours of sleep. Don't seem to be tired. Maybe they take a nap. It's very, very short and sweet. And they do well. But the us mere mortals need seven or eight hours, and that probably is the right answer for the majority of people. When it comes to sleep, you know, all these different studies, it can be a little confusing. It can be a little overwhelming. Um, you know, do I have to follow these things to the T, or do I just sleep until I've had enough? Like, I know that when they say, here's a rudimentary example, you know, when it yeah. comes to pairing wine with food, use your favorite wine and you're good. Yeah. Do I just use the number of hours of sleep that, that work for me? In some ways, yes. So I think we've we've got too technical with this, with all these devices that will tell you, you know, how many hours did you sleep? Was a good quality sleep? Like, I think you should be able to wake up in the morning and have a pretty good idea whether you had a good night's sleep, whether you have a watch on or not a watch on. So I think we've made it very technical. We've We've got people very anxious about the numbers, right? If you don't sleep seven or eight hours, then this is a really problem and you should worry about it and you should get, you know, try to do something different. But maybe that's all you need and maybe that's just fine. So, yes, I think it's more of a gestalt. If you feel good, you wake up well-rested, 
don't look at the water. Don't look at anything. You've slept well. Move on. This is a beautiful thing, whether that be six hours, seven hours, or eight hours. We shouldn't get too fixated on all of this. Overall, Dr. J, from two who nap on the regular, do you think naps are good for us? I think if if you are going to nap, keep it very short and sweet. So that th- there is a notion that around that 20-minute mark might be the ideal as opposed to a two-hour nap to catch up. Two hours will have a huge impact on your nighttime sleep, and that would be probably for everybody. But a very short nap might actually be just fine, recharge us. And, and again, the, the bottom line is as long as it has no impact on your night's sleep, that you can't fall asleep because you've napped too often, then you're probably good to go. And a short nap might be just, just perfect. At what point, Dr. J, do I say I have to see my family physician? I'm having a hard time falling asleep or staying asleep. I'm feeling tired. Uh, do I give it a few days or a week? When do I go to the doctor? Yeah, this can be very short term, right? Some, something bad happens in life. There's a life event or a life stressor, and I don't sleep well for a few nights. I think that's fine, and, and that most of us will will catch up at some point. But if this is something that's going on for weeks or months, or I am just chronically tired, I'm chronically feeling unwell mentally, physically, and it seems to hinge around my sleep, you absolutely should be seen because there are ways of trying to manage this and help this out. And sometimes it's an indicator of other issues. So yes, absolutely go see your doc if this is more than a few days or this seems to really have impact on your health. I really need a nap after this conversation. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you, Dr. J. Appreciate it. Okay, you betcha. Thanks, Dr. Ted Jablonski is our on-call family physician.